0: Section 9 of The Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 9 Samuel Adams, Part 2 and so there they convened on the fifth day of September, 1774, having met by appointment and walked over from the city tavern in a body. Forty-four men were present, not a large gathering, but they had come hundreds of miles, and several of them had been monks on the journey. They were a sturdy lot, and, madam, I think it would have been worth while to have looked in upon them. There were several coonskin caps in evidence, also lays and frills, and velvet brought from England, but plainness to severity was the rule. Few of these men had ever been away from their own colonies before. Few had ever met any members of the Congress save their own colleagues. They represented civilizations of very different degrees. Each stood a bit in awe of all the rest. Several of the colonies had been in conflict with the others. Meeting new men in those days, when even the stagecoach was a passing show worth going miles to see, was an event. There was awkwardness and nervousness on the swarthy faces, firm mouths twitched and big bony hands sought for places of concealment. The meeting had been called for September 1st, but was postponed for five days, awaiting the arrival of belated delegates who had been detained by floods. Even then, delegates from North Carolina had not arrived, and Georgia not having thought it worthwhile to send any, eleven colonies only were represented. Each delegation naturally kept together, as men will, who have a fighting history and a pioneer ancestry. It was a serious, solemn business, and these men were not given to levity in any event. When they were seated, there was a moment of silence so tense it could be heard. Every chance moment of a foot on the uncarpeted floor sent an echo through the room. The stillness was first broken by Mr. Lynch, of South Carolina, who arose and in a low, clear voice said, There is a gentleman present who has presided with great dignity over a very respectable body and greatly to the advantage of America. Gentlemen, I move that the Honorable Peyton Randolph, one of the delegates from Virginia, be appointed to preside over this meeting. I doubt not it will be unanimous. It was so and a large man in powdered wig and scarlet coat arose, and carrying his gold-headed cane before him like a mace, walked to the platform without apology. The New Englanders in homespun looked at one another with trepidation on their features. The red coat was not assuring, but they kept their peace and breathed hard, praying that the enemy had not captured the convention through strategy. Mr. Randolph's first suggestion was not revolutionary it was that a secretary be appointed. Again, Mr. Lynch arose and named Charles Thompson quote, a gentleman of family, fortune, and character. This testimonial of family and fortune was not assuring to the plain Massachusetts men, but they said nothing and awaited developments. All were cautious, as woodsmen, and the motion that the council be held behind closed doors was adopted." Every member then held up his right hand and made a solemn promise to divulge no part of the transactions, and Galloway of Pennsylvania promised with the rest, and straightaway each night informed the enemy of every move. Little was done that first day, but get acquainted by talking very cautiously and very politely. The next day a notable member had arrived, and in a front seat sat Richard Henry Lee, a man you would turn and look at in any company. Slender and dark, with a brilliant eye and a profile, and only one man in ten thousand has a profile, Lee was a gracious presence. His voice was gentle and flexible and luring, and there was a dignity and poise in his manner that made him easily the foremost orator of his time. Near him sat William Livingston of New Jersey and John Jay, his son-in-law, the youngest man in the Congress, with a nose that denoted character and all his fame in the future. The Pennsylvanians were all together, grouped in one side. Duane of New York sat near them, quote, shy and squint-eyed, very sensible and very artful, wrote John Adams that night in his diary. Then over there sat Christopher Gadsden of South Carolina, who had preached independence for full ten years before this, and who, when he heard that the British soldiers had taken Boston, proposed to raise a troop at once and fight redcoats wherever found. "'But the British will burn our seaport towns if we antagonise them,' some timid soul explained. "'Our towns are built of brick and wood. "'If they are burned, we can rebuild them. "'But liberty, once gone, is gone for ever,' he retorted. "'And the saying sounds well, even if it will not stand analysis.' "'Back near the wall was a man who, when the assembly stood at morning prayers, "'showed a half-head above his neighbours. "'His face was broad, and he, too, had a profile.' His mouth was tightly closed, and during the first fourteen days of that Congress he never opened it to utter a word, and after his long quiet, he broke the silence by saying, Quote, Mr. President, I second the motion. End quote. Once in a passionate speech, Lynch turned to him and pointing his finger, said, Quote, There is a man who has not spoken here, but in the Virginia Assembly he made a most eloquent speech I ever heard. He said I will raise a thousand men, and arm and subsist them at my expense, and march them to the relief of Boston. And then did the tall man, whose name was George Washington, blush like a schoolgirl. But in all that company, the men most noticed were the five members from Massachusetts. They were Bowden, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Gushing, and Robert Treat Payne. Massachusetts had thus far taken the lead in the struggle with England, a british army was encamped upon her soil her chief city besieged the port closed her sufferings had called this congress into being and to her delegates the members had come to listen all recognized samuel adams as the chief man of the convention his hand wrote the invitations and earnest requests to come galloway writing to his friends the enemy said Samuel Adams eats little, drinks little, sleeps little, and thinks much. He is most decisive and indefatigable in the pursuit of his object. He is the man who, by his superior application, manages at once the faction in Philadelphia and the factions of New England. Yet Samuel Adams talked little at the convention. He allowed John Adams to state the case but sat next to him, supplying memoranda, occasionally arising to make remarks or explanations in a purely conversational tone. But so earnest and impressive was his manner, so ably did he answer every argument and reply to every objection, that he thoroughly convinced a tall, angular, homely man by the name of Patrick Henry of the righteousness of his cause. Patrick Henry was pretty thoroughly convinced before, but the recital of Boston's case fired the Virginian, and he made the first and only real speech of the Congress. In burning words he pictured all the colonies had suffered and endured, and by his matchless eloquence told in prophetic words of the glories yet to be. In his speech he paid just tribute to the genius of Samuel Adams, declaring that the good that was to come from this, quote, first of an unending succession of Congresses, end quote, was owing to the work of Adams. And in the after years adams repaid the compliment by saying that if it had not been for the cementing power of patrick henry's eloquence that first congress would probably have ended in a futile wrangle the south regarded in great degree the fight in boston as Massachusetts' own to make the entire thirteen colonies adopt the quarrel and back the Colonial Army in the vicinity of Boston was the only way to make the issue a success, and to unite the factions by choosing for a leader a Virginian aristocrat was a crowning stroke of diplomacy. John Hancock had succeeded Randolph as President of the Second Congress, and Virginia was inclined to be lukewarm when John Adams, in an impassioned speech, nominated Colonel George Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. The nomination was seconded very quietly by Samuel Adams. It was a vote, and the South was committed to the cause of backing up Washington and, incidentally, New England. The entire plan was probably the work of Samuel Adams, yet he gave the credit to John, while the credit of stoutly opposing it goes to John Hancock, who, being presiding officer, worked at a disadvantage. But Adams had a way of reducing opposition to the minimum. He kept out of sight and furthered his ends by pushing this man or that to the front at the right time to make the plea. He was a master in that fine art of managing men and never letting them know they are managed. By keeping behind the arras he accomplished purposes that a leader never can who allows his personality to be in continual evidence, for personality repels as well as attracts, and the man too much before the public is sure to be undone eventually. Adams knew that the power of Pericles lay largely in the fact that he was never seen upon but a single street of Athens, and that but once a year. The complete writings of Adams have recently been collected and published. One marvels that such valuable material has not before been printed and given to the public, for the literary style and perspicuity shown are most inspiring, and the value of the data cannot be gainsaid. No one ever accused Adams of being a muddy thinker. You grant his premises, and you are bound to accept his conclusions. He leaves no loopholes for escape. The following words used by Chatham refer to documents in which Adams took a prominent part in preparing. Quote, when your lordship's look at the papers transmitted us from America, when you consider their decency, firmness, and wisdom, you cannot but respect their cause and wish to make it your own. For myself, I must avow that, in all my reading, and I have read Thucydides and have studied and admired the master statesmen of the world, for solidity of reason, force of sagacity, and wisdom of conclusion under a complication of difficult circumstances, no body of men can stand in preference to the General Congress of Philadelphia. The histories of Greece and Rome give us nothing like it, and all attempts to impress servitude on such a mighty continental people must be in vain. End quote. In the life of Adams there was no soft sentiment nor romantic vagaries. Quote, he is a Puritan in all the word implies and the unbending fanatic of independence, End quote. wrote Gage, and the description fits. He was twice married. Our knowledge of his first wife is very slight, but his second wife, Elizabeth Wells, daughter of an english merchant was a capable woman of brave good sense she adopted her husband's political views and with true womanly devotion let her old kinsmen slide and during the dark hours of the war bore deprivation without repining adam's home life was simple to the verge of hardship all through life he was on the ragged edge financially And in his latter years, he was, for the first time, relieved from pressing obligations by an afflicting event, the death of his only son, who was a surgeon in Washington's army. The money paid to the son by the government for his services gave the father the only financial competency he ever knew. Two daughters survived him, but with him died the name. John Adams survived Samuel for 23 years. He lived to see, quote, the great American experiment, as Mr. Ruskin had been pleased to call a country on a firm basis, constantly growing stronger and stronger. He lived to realize that the sanguine prophecies made by Samuel were working themselves out in very truth. The grave of Samuel Adams is viewed by more people than that of any other American patriot. In the old granary burying ground, in the very center of Boston, on Tremont Street, there where travel congests, and two living streams meet all day long. You look through the iron fence, so slender that its scarce impedes the view, and not twenty feet from the curb is a simple metal disc set on an iron rod, driven into the ground, and on it this inscription, quote, This marks the grave of Samuel Adams. For many years the grave was unmarked, and the disc that now denotes it was only recently placed in position by the Sons of the American Revolution. But the place of Samuel Adams on the pages of history is secure. Upon the times in which he lived, he exercised a profound influence. And he who influences the times in which he lives has influenced all the times that come after. He has left his impress on eternity. End of section 9